The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, we are in Mark chapter 1. We're going to be cruising through verses 12 through 28 this morning. Last week, as Paul was teaching, he posed the question, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, as we followed the, go- the gospel writer's introduction to Jesus, we learned a few things that the early church believed about his identity, about who Jesus actually is. Through the words of Mark, and likely through the words of the apostle Peter, Mark acting as his amanuensis, we're beginning to build a profile of how Jesus was saying not only as a rabbi, as a good teacher, or a morally upright person, but as indeed the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God's promised deliverer and Messiah. Mark has already told us this in chapter 1. In, beginning in verse 1, he tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God. And then he mentions in verses 2 and 3 that the prophets said that Jesus is Lord. Now it's very interesting, that prophecy that's quoted, it's a compilation of Isaiah and of Malachi. And in that prophecy, the messenger of the Lord, Lord there in the Old Testament is, is Yahweh. Yahweh. And that's a direct reference to the deity of Jesus. It's a, it's a fantastic passage that demonstrates that Jesus is in fact God. John the Baptist said that he was the one after me who is mightier than I. Even though John the Baptist was a, an amazing prophet used by God, he acknowledges that Jesus is mightier than I. And God the Father in the baptism calls Jesus the beloved Son of God with whom he's pleased. So already, we're we're beginning to grab a hold of some identifiers of, of who Jesus is to these early Christians. How did they view him? What did they believe was true about the person, about the nature, and about the work that Jesus is accomplishing? Now, with these identifiers in place, we will see the first challenges to Jesus' identity come right on the heels of his baptism as we look through our section today in verses 12 through 28. I'd like to divide those up into four sort of categories or thought folders for you to kind of put and place thoughts in. Verses 12 through 13, we'll look at the temptation. 12 through 13, the temptation. Verses 14 and 15, the proclamation. The proclamation, verses 14 and 15. Verses 16 to 20, the invitation. The invitation. And finally, verses 21 to 28, the emancipation. The emancipation. Let's begin by reading the text here. Beginning in verse 12, after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 
40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. As we look at this passage and consider, you'll notice that it's it's, it's a little bit choppy in that he jumps from one story to another story to another story, and there's a lot of, of activity that's happening right off the bat. Mark's gospel is actually the shortest of the gospels in content because Mark uh, takes this approach of, of, of just filing and categorizing all the actions of Jesus throughout his life. And it's, it's probable that Mark's gospel was one of the sources that was used for the writing of the other two synoptic gospels, the gospels that are similar in their content and layout of the, of the life of Jesus. And so, Paul, or, so Mark here moves from uh, the baptism of Jesus here right into this moment of temptation in verses 12 through 13. Now this temptation that that Jesus is facing is, is vast in its implications for the rest of Scripture. It's tied to a, a bunch of Old Testament imagery and, and, and Jesus' wrestling with Satan and, and his defeat of the enemy is, is tied to uh, prophecies about the victory of the Messiah over the enemies of God. 
But I want to focus us in on, on three aspects of the temptation this morning. The first one being is that it is a temptation of identity. A temptation of identity. You see, after the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove and rests upon him, and after hearing the approval of his Father, Jesus is then, as the Scripture says here, driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment. I think it's worth considering this morning the fact that sometimes it is the will of God to lead His people into spiritual conflict. It is the desire of God to lead His people into spiritual conflict. Now, as much as we may decry the the stance of those that are caught up in the, the movement that has been called the prosperity movement or the prosperity gospel, it's interesting that I find even in myself, and I have recognized in believers throughout my experience with them, that there is still a little bit of prosperity gospel in all of us. Oh, not necessarily in, in claiming health and wealth and those kinds of things, but I have found that often when we enter into a season of testing or of trial, the very first question that comes up in our minds is, what did I do wrong? As soon as suffering enters the equation, we begin to ask the question, okay, what did I do wrong? Now, I think that this reflex is likely due to the fact that there's usually a dozen or so things that we can point to in our lives that are reasons that we are owed some sort of judgment or owed some sort of consequence. However, it is also important for us to acknowledge that not every trial is the direct result of us making a mistake. Sometimes... The Holy Spirit directs us into conflict, into testing, into difficulty, because suffering reveals the deepest beliefs in our hearts. Suffering challenges our identity in God. What do we actually believe to be true about what God has said? It's interesting to note that the temptations that were brought to Jesus were, in fact, direct tests of what God had said to the Son. Remember, the Father had said to the Son in the baptism, you are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Now, from other gospel accounts, we know that Satan came directly against those words by challenging the love that the Father had for his Son. Satan prefaces at least two of the temptations that Jesus faces by saying, if you truly are the Son of God, if you, if, you, if you truly are the Son of God, and then he goes into the test, the temptation. This is a direct challenge to what God had already revealed to the Son. But now is the test of whether or not Jesus will rely upon it. 
Will he believe what his father has said? Does he have to prove it in some supernatural way? You see, trials and tests are sometimes not the result of sin. Sometimes trials and tests are the diagnostic tools that reveal what is really in our hearts toward God. What we really believe about Him and what we believe about what He has said to us and about us, all of that is revealed when the test comes. So, when the job is lost. What do you believe about God? Or when the health crisis happens, what do you believe about God in that moment? When the relationship fails, what do you believe about God? What is true about Him in that circumstance? When you show up to hear Pastor Paul preach, and the guy who's normally long-winded is there? What do you believe about God in that moment? Or when you're wounded in the church, and the people of God have been responsible for your hurt, what do you believe about God in that moment? When a child falls away from the faith and you see them wrestling, what do you believe about God in that moment? When things are spiraling out of control, it appears in the world, and mandates are given, and our values feel attacked, what do you believe about God in that moment? And see, when the test comes, the things that we really believe to be true, what is really on the inside of us, comes bubbling out of us. And it is the Holy Spirit who is directing us to that crisis in the moment in order that we might know what God already knows is in our heart. He's revealing it to us. How you respond to trials reveals what you believe about God. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to drive us directly into moments where we can see what is really in our hearts. Now Jesus, of course, passes this test with flying colors because he knew who he was to the Father. See, this is one of the reasons that we spend so much time growing in the Scriptures together. Understanding our identity in God. Understanding who we are from God's perspective. That we matter to Him. That He's wholly invested, Father, Son, and Spirit, in our redemption. This is why we gather on a Sunday morning, that we might see God as He is, that He might be glorified and magnified in our sight, that we walk away with that imprint, that image in our mind, once again renewed to the concept of who God is and the fact that He's in control and the fact that we matter to Him. 
We need that reminder. But man, if you come only on a Sunday, yeah, it, it, it's like a person who goes to the gym regularly but always skips leg day, right? Big, massive upper body, but little pencil legs coming down from the bottom, right? Sunday has its place. We're reminded of the glory of God. We're reminded in the gathering of the saints of what eternity is going to be like. But, but man, the work of discipleship happens when we get to know one another and what is in our hearts, those, those things that are, that are being revealed through the trials and through the tests in our lives, is, is being exposed to the body and we minister to one another in relationship with one another. That connection is what purifies and sanctifies us. The body, ministering to the body, that we might grow in the likeness of Christ. So, encouragement, don't skip leg day. Right? Embrace the trials. Let God do the work in you that he desires to do. If you find yourself fighting at the, the, the world that is out of control from our perspective, have you forgotten that God is on the throne? Have you forgotten that he already said this world is, is coming to a crash course connection with him personally? Have you forgotten what you've been called to as brothers and sisters in Christ to love one another, to build each other up regardless of differing perspectives on whether or not a mask is to be worn or whether or not you, know, you, you, you trust the governor or the, the president or you know, the world or whatever, China, it doesn't matter. Have you forgotten that God is still on the throne? I hope that we haven't. I hope that once again, when the test comes, what comes bubbling out of us is confidence that the world is not spinning out of control, but that God is firmly seated upon the throne and that he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Wow. We see here Jesus in the temptation. We also see a, a redemption history here. A redemption of history, excuse me. When he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, Jesus has, has already identified with humanity in baptism, but here he is also identified with humanity in their temptations. Do you remember what Hebrews 4.15 tells us? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus faces this temptation and does so without sin. He identifies with us. He's going through the same experiences in life that we are going through. But couched in this, this little vignette here is, is this reference, this nod to the amount of time that Jesus spends being tested of the devil in the wilderness. Forty days he was tempted by Satan. Now Matthew and Luke detail three specific temptations that Jesus suffered in these days and how Jesus resisted each of them by standing upon the word of God. It's interesting, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy three different times from the same book of the Bible to refute 
Satan when he is tested and, and tempted by the enemy. But Mark tells us that Jesus faced more than these three dramatic temptations described by Matthew and Luke. This entire period of time, this entire 40 days, was a period of testing. Now, interestingly, though, there is a definite tie-in to the story of God throughout redemption history that the, I believe the authors are making here. The author of this gospel account and the others in the synoptics make it a point to give us the specific details about the time that Jesus was tested for, for 40 days. As you track the idea of 40 days throughout the Bible, what you see is this sort of emerging pattern that the number is significant. It comes up again and again. Remember, in Noah's flood, it rained for 40 days and for 40 nights. Moses, after fleeing for his life from Egypt, was, being, uh, was a shepherd in the wilderness and kept sheep for 40 years. The Bible then says that Moses made two trips to Mount Sinai to receive the tablets, and he spent 40 days on the mountain, each time fasting. In fact, not only that, but Moses and Elijah and Jesus all fasted for 40-day lengths of time. You'll remember that Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Saul, David, and Solomon, each of them reigned for 40 years, each marked by failing to reign righteously. Perhaps you'll remember that Goliath taunted the Israelites for 40 days before David finally defeated him. And maybe you'll remember the story of Ezekiel, how he was told by God to lay on his right side that he might bear the iniquity of Judah's sins for 40 days. It's a recurring theme that comes up in the Scriptures. Well, what's interesting is that in each of those stories of 40 days, what you see is not the success of humanity, but ultimately the failure of humanity. Why is Noah in a boat for 40 days and 40 nights? Because the world is so wicked, he's the only one that lasts. He's the only one that God spares. Why was Moses in the wilderness for 40 years, tending sheep? Because he had tried to deliver God's people in the strength of his flesh. Why did Moses have to go back up Mount Sinai again and spend another 40 days fasting because Israel was failing. They broke all Ten Commandments all at once, right at the very beginning. As they entered into the covenant, they were breaking it. What about the kings, David and Solomon and Saul, how did their reign end? Well, they had 20 good years and 20 bad years, each one of them. And ultimately, they're marked by failure. You see, Jesus passes his time of testing, this hand-to-hand -hand conflict with Satan himself, and he comes out victorious. He's the greater than Noah that absorbs the condemnation of the world rather than escapes it. 
He's the greater than Moses, who never entered the promised land because he failed the test in the desert. He's the greater king who walks in righteousness to reign over and with his people. He is the greater than Ezekiel, who bears not only the iniquity of Judah, but bears the sins of the world. He's the greater than David, who slays the giants of Satan and sin and death and triumphs over his enemy in war, claiming the victory for his people. Jesus is the victorious conquering king. Now, Jesus passes this time of testing because of what is in Jesus' heart. This test was, was also a statement of authority. You see, having defeated Satan, the, this short little passage here tells us that after defeating Satan, he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. One commentator that I was reading this morning made a note to say that the ancient Greek grammar, the emphasis, uh, in the ancient Greek grammar, the emphasis is on with. In other words, Jesus was at peace with the wild beasts. This shows two things. Jesus is the second Adam, and unlike the unfallen, excuse me, and like the unfallen Adam, he enjoys a peaceful relationship with all the animals. Remember all the animals came to Adam, he named them, right? So Jesus, as the second Adam, is, is succeeding in temptation where Adam failed. But also that Jesus remains the unfallen, sinless one despite all the temptation with authority over all the wild beasts, and even creation itself acknowledges his lordship, his kingship. In addition to that, uh, commentator John Trapp says this, these creatures saw in Christ the perfect image of God and therefore reverenced him as their Lord, as they did Adam before his fall. Not only that, but we see, we see angels ministering to Jesus. Angels come and minister to him at the end of the temptation. No doubt, feeding him and caring for him physically. Now think about this scene. We don't talk a whole lot about like the supernatural world and angels and you know, all of that. I think it's a little bit woo for us, right? We're, we're not, especially as good Westerners, we are uncomfortable with too much supernatural stuff sprinkled into our Sunday mornings. I get it. But the text says it right here. Angels, heavenly beings, came and ministered to Jesus after the temptation. They demonstrated care. So not only do the wild beasts acknowledge Jesus as King and Lord, but heaven itself comes down and acknowledges Jesus as King and Lord in that moment and serves him in restoring him after facing the, the 40 days of temptation. G. Campbell Morgan said this, morally victorious. He was the master of crea creation beneath him, and the angels ran upon his errands. For such is the real suggestiveness of the word. Thus he is seen as God's man, perfect in spite of the temptation. 
So here we see the temptation, but, but next in verses 14 to 15, he trans, he, the, the author of, of the Gospel of Mark transitions to Jesus' ministry as he comes out of the desert and begins to proclaim the Gospel. We see here in verses 14 and 15 the proclamation. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God. John, John the Baptist, was arrested for uh, confronting a Roman ruler in that time for his marriage to his niece and his incestuous relationship with her, and as a result was arrested. So John is removed as a prophetic voice in this moment. But Jesus begins going throughout Galilee and proclaiming the gospel of God. A couple of things to note on that. First of all, Galilee was not some backwater region. According to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, Galilee was an area of about 30 or 60 by 30 miles and had 204 villages in that, in that span. It was kind of the urban sprawl, if you will. And each of those villages had no less than 15,000 people. This means that there were more than 3 million people in the extended region. It's a lot of people living around the Sea of Galilee. In the absence of John's cries in the wilderness, Jesus begins proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, I want you to just focus in real quick on that phrasing, the gospel of God. Whose gospel is it? God's, okay? Peek right back to verse 1, though in the same chapter. The beginning of the gospel of who? Jesus Christ. What does that tell you about what the early church thought about Jesus' identity, that he and God were one and the same? It's their gospel. It's their gospel. Now, he's proclaiming the gospel of God. I read this morning that the word gospel was used throughout the Roman Empire, as you know, for a transition of the king. But it wasn't just that. They actually had these things, these festivals that were called evangels. Evangels. Now, these festivals were national proclamations of celebration for the birthday of the emperor, for his inauguration into power, uh, for you know, different events that would happen. They would, they would come out and say, we proclaim an evangel. We, we, we proclaim good news, good tidings, a, a, a gospel celebration here because there's a shift that is happening throughout the empire as a result of the one who's in authority. And we're all to celebrate it. And, and Jesus is heralding the good tidings of God. And what is his message to the people as he heralds this? Verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. There are two ancient Greek words that can be translated time. One of those is chronos. Chronos, meaning simple chronological time. The other is kairos, meaning 
the strategic opportunity, the decisive time. Like, this is your moment, right? Jesus used the second word. He said, the time is fulfilled. His idea was this. The strategic time for the kingdom of God is right now. Now is your time of opportunity. Don't let it pass you by. Take advantage of this because the kingdom is here. The time, your moment, it's here right now. Don't miss it. There's a sense of urgency in the preaching of Jesus. The kingdom is near because the king is here. So the question is, how does Jesus think people should respond to that news? What should they do in response to that? Really, two things that he outlines here. Repent and believe, trust in, rely upon this good news. Repent. And believe. Now, this last week, I embarked on a brand new adventure. I've got three kids. My oldest moved out uh, in, in the last year, and she lives in Jacksonville, very close to us. And I, it's, it's a total blessing. I still see her less, but she's accessible. I get to see her and, and be around her. She can come over from, for dinner, raid our food, steal our dishes. It's wonderful having her close. I love all of that. But this last week, I took my middle child, my son, down to Phoenix, Arizona, and we dropped him off at the tech school that he's going to, got him set up in his apartment, got in our rental car, drove to the airport, and flew away. And now one of our kids is in another state, not very accessible, thank the Lord, that we live in a, an age of like FaceTime and, you know, texting and a high level of communication. But everything in me wanted to say to my son, Elijah, repent of living in Arizona and come back to Oregon and be near your dad and your mom. We love you. We want you close. Now, if Elijah was to hear that, and hopefully he's tuning in online right now, this is the command of the Lord. <laughs> if he were to hear that, in order to fulfill the, the command to repent, he really needs to do one thing. Leave. He's going to have to leave. Change is going to be required. He cannot remain there and be repentant. Now, it's one action, really. All he has to do is get out of his apartment, get in his car, and drive back to Oregon. One action that it really accomplishes two things. He's, he's trusting in, in my word, right? He's believing that I love him and will receive him, will welcome him with open arms. But it's one action that, that accomplishes really two things. By believing what I've said, he now is in a position to abandon where he is and come closer to me, his father. And see, that's what repentance is. 
Listen, if nothing changes in your life as a result of following Jesus, then you're probably not following Jesus. That's the reality. Repentance is required. We cannot live unto ourselves. We have to see Jesus as more glorious. He's the treasure that's buried in the field. He's the one whom our soul loves. We we count the cost as disciples, and, and we see Jesus as being supremely valuable, and it means all other things become secondary to following Jesus and knowing Him and loving Him. And that will bring us steadily into more and more conflict in areas of our lives where there are competing affections and competing desires. Martin Luther said this, he said, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. In other words, it's not this one-time event, it's this It's this departure from a way of living separate of our Father. And it's a pursuit of I'm getting closer. I want to be near Him. I want to be like Him. Change my heart. Change who I am. Change the way that I think. God, I want to be formed into the image of Your Son. Make me like You've declared me to be. It's a lifelong pursuit of becoming like Jesus. And so, Jesus' expectation upon the hearing of the gospel of God is that people would respond by leaving a life separated from God and pursuing a life united with God and imitating, mimicking Jesus in His unitedness with God. And so, Jesus extends this invitation, that gives this proclamation, and then he starts gathering disciples in verses 16 through 20. And so here we see the invitation. Jesus calls Simon and Andrew, and later he calls James and John in the same passage. Now, it's interesting that this was not the first time that Jesus had met this group of men. John chapter 1, uh, verse 35 through chapter 4, roughly, describes their, their previous meeting. But here, Jesus encounters them, and he brings them to a crisis moment. Passing along the sea, alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. It's interesting to think about this reality of what these guys were facing in that moment. Jesus is saying, like, abandon your business. Abandon your family. I know you have obligations. I know that you have responsibilities. Leave it all behind and come and follow me. We know that Peter had a wife and therefore responsibilities. We know that all four men mentioned in this passage had 
family and business obligations, still Jesus calls them to follow him. So the invitation to, to follow Jesus and be his apprentice, apprentices was a, actually a valued invitation. The invitation to pr- apprentice under a rabbi was considered a great honor in that culture. And when they made the choice to follow Jesus, it was an invitation to become like Jesus, not just to learn his teaching, but to, to, to mimic his living, to become like him. And from the very beginning, Jesus makes clear that he doesn't plan to do away with their skills as fishermen, but rather to employ their skills and make them fishers of men. And this is the way it is to this day. God has a plan to redeem the world. You guys know that, right? That's that's the gospel story. He has a plan to redeem the world. He inaugurated that plan through sending his son to die on the cross for sins, to be raised again from the dead, to ascend to the throne where he currently sits on the throne in heaven, ruling and reigning over his already present kingdom, which is not yet fully fulfilled. All of that is true. But did you know that God is still working redemption in the world not through His Son incarnate in the flesh, but through people. You. Me. We've been called by Jesus to become like Jesus and and becoming like Jesus. Now, Jesus, the head of the body of Christ, sends His body into the world that they might represent Him. And God is still working redemption, still working compassion, still working justice and mercy. And he's doing it through you guys. He's doing it through us. Jesus uses their natural gifts as fishermen. And he calls them and he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. In other words, the work is not done simply in the calling, but through you coming and following me, you're going to learn what it looks like to become a discipler of others, a fisher of men. I'm going to show you how to do this. I'm going to show you how to gather people and teach them to live like me, to become like me from the heart. And God is continuing that ministry to the present day. You know, it started with four guys here, which eventually became 12, which eventually became 120, which carried out throughout the centuries, has become now millions around the world. It's incredible. God's plan of redemption is still unfolding. Presently, we're living it out right now. And thinking about that this morning, I was reminded of the doctrine of vocation. You see, the Puritans, early on in American history, were incredible thinkers, wonderful philosophers, and they they began to ask this, this question. They said, okay, what is the most spiritual that somebody could be? 
And so immediately what came up in their minds was, well, a pastor. Maybe a pastor, right? And then they thought about that. And they said, well, okay, if, if that's the case and God wants all men to become spiritual, then all men should become pastors. But then they asked the question, okay, but if all men become pastors, then who will shoe our horses? <laughs> and who will build our homes? So they began to backtrack their logic. Okay, where, where did we go wrong in our thinking here? And they realized it must be then that one of the manifold graces of God in the world is that God is dispensing His grace, creating order in the world, demonstrating His care for the world through the various vocations that exist in the world. So that the blacksmith shoes horses for the glory of God so that the preacher can ride from town to town and proclaim the gospel. And houses are built to hold families who believe in the gospel and minister the gospel to their kids that a new generation of humans will come up knowing the gospel, loving Jesus, and becoming like him. And then they further reason, they said, okay, but also... When we get to eternity and we're in heaven, there will no longer be a need for a pastor. Who needs pastoring? That which is perfect has come. We don't need pastoring. He's out of a job. But we might still need carpenters and blacksmiths. In the new heaven and the new earth, we still will need these other vocations. In fact, those vocations are eternal. The pastor's vocation is temporal. Here's what I want you to see by this. There is, there is this idea that somehow the professionalization of ministry and, and, and becoming you know, a pastor is like the apex of spirituality. That is not the will of God. God calls specific men, and he calls them to be pastors for the equipping of the saints, for the, the nurturing of the body of Christ. That is, that is absolutely true. But the common and eternal way that God dispenses his grace in the world is through whatever you're doing, whatever your vocation is. He employs those skills for the kingdom of God. I have a, a, a friend of mine who lives out in Cave Junction, a very interesting guy, an older gentleman who uh, he never learned to read, was never able to, to learn how to read, and uh, got saved later in life, became radically in love with Jesus, and then uh, he went on a missions trip to Vanuatu, which is an island in the South Pacific, and there he encountered the Nevans, the natives in Vanuatu, who also could not read. And he preached the gospel to them and, 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 and brought the gospel. He would hike from village to village throughout the island sharing the gospel. He came up, this, we're talking like early 2000s. He was packing giant solar panels on his backpack with a little DVD player and would show the Jesus movie to people in the bush 
right? He backpacked for three days with a solar panel and a DVD player to bring the gospel to these people in Vanuatu and share with them because he couldn't read from the scriptures. He wanted them to know who Jesus was, and he would show them on a little mini portable DVD player the story of Jesus. The whole village would come out and crowd around in these little huts and listen to the story, and he would preach the gospel to them. And hundreds of people got saved as a result. I know, I got to see it firsthand. It's amazing. You know what Dan does? He hangs gutters. He's a continuous gutter guy. And paints. He paints houses. And all of his prophets go towards the kingdom. He loves Jesus. He's employed for Jesus. He's not a pastor, but he's a minister. He's a servant. And you are too. Whatever God has put in your hand to do, do it to the glory of God. God employs his people for kingdom purposes. You see, to be a disciple, we have to have faith in Jesus. We have to trust him. We have to know him. We have to love him. We have to become like Jesus. That's the call of disciples to follow in Jesus' footsteps and be transformed from the heart, to become like him in the way that we think, in the way that we act, in the, the, the actions that we take in the world. But also there's this third step of being a disciple, and that is where we begin looking around us and leading others into that same pursuit, into that same lifestyle. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And God has employed every person who names the name of Jesus to live that out. That's the reality. So, here he employs these four disciples. Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. I'm going to shape you through the process. And immediately they left their nets. They followed him. Verse 19, and going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee with the hired servants. And they followed him. They said, okay, we'll do what you've called us to do. We'll follow you in that. Just a quick heart check, gut check for all of us. Are you following Jesus in that way? There are many Christians who say, no, the only thing that's required of me is faith in Jesus. No. No. If you have faith in Jesus, you're growing in the likeness of Jesus. It's changing you. It's not just abstract belief. You're being shaped into the image of God's Son, going from glory to greater glory. You're beholding Him as in a mirror and being changed into the same image. You're being transformed, renewed, shaped throughout the course of your life to become like Jesus. But not only that, if you are becoming like Jesus, you cannot sit by and watch people who are perishing and not have your heart moved with compassion. It's impossible to not want to make disciples. It's impossible to sit on the sidelines and watch a world going to hell 
and not find ourselves moved with compassion, moved with a sense of urgency to take action that others might know Jesus, trust in Jesus, become like Jesus, and then go out and make disciples of their own. They go hand in hand. Following Jesus isn't left solely to those who leave their job like these four did. The invitation to become like Jesus is extended through the disciples to you and to I. And then he employs us where we are for his kingdom purposes. Lastly, in verses 21 to 28, we see the emancipation. Jesus strolls into Capernaum on the Sabbath and enters into a synagogue. He's there teaching. This was a, a normal custom. Jesus went into the, this synagogue. Luke's gospel tells us that a local centurion built this synagogue at Capernaum. This is the same centurion whom Jesus said, I have not found such faith in Israel. He said that about this centurion. Now, it was destroyed in warfare later on, but then rebuilt again in the 4th century. And if you go to Capernaum today, you can actually walk into the rebuilt structure of the synagogue there. I, I had the wonderful privilege of being able to visit there uh, back in 2008-ish. And you walk in and stand in the same spot and see this scene from the Bible unfold because this is a real event. This is what really happened. It's not fantastical. This is grounded in history and a real place. So he ends up in the synagogue, and he's teaching, and people are astonished at his teaching, verse 22, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. The scribes would, of course, quote, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi Hallel says that, and blah, 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 and they would, you know, expound on the scriptures. It was common for rabbis to come and teach as guests in that space, but Jesus doesn't come in and do that. He doesn't quote other people. He's like, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, that was the way Jesus operated. And they're like, whoa, dude's got authority. I mean, he, he speaks very confidently as though he knows exactly what's going on. He, he, there's an authority to his teaching. And while he is teaching, verse 23 says, and immediately there was a synagogue, in the synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out. So this idea of an unclean spirit pulls from the Jewish categories of clean and unclean. Here's this man that has a spiritual entity that has invaded him, is, has taken up residence, is indwelling him in this moment. And that spirit is an unclean spirit. It, it, is, it is outside of, of the cleanliness laws. It's demonic. It's an evil, malevolent presence in his life. And then it's not just one, but it seems to be many because as they cry out, making use of him, having possessed him, and speaking on their behalf, they say, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. Now, 
In this short little story where Jesus casts out a demon, we see that Jesus comes in to preach, but ministry begins unfolding because as he's preaching the gospel, as he's proclaiming the good work of God and his, his plan of redemption, what happens is in the presence of those people, there is a demonically inhabited person who begins to react to the truth of the gospel and identifies Jesus but Jesus demonstrates his command over spiritual en entities by stopping their mouths and casting them out. You know, exorcists were actually common in the Near East. For example, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, circa 250 uh, B.C. And, and all the way up to 50 A.D., there was a text containing uh, an incantation formula designed to exorcise demons that were discovered. And there's an ancient account from the historian Josephus of, about the work of an exorcist named Eliezer. This is what he said. He said, he put on the nose of the possessed man a ring which had under its seal one of the roots prescribed by Solomon. And then the man smelled it, and it drew the demon through his nostrils. And when the man at once fell down, he adjured the demon never to come back to him, speaking Solomon's name and reciting the incantations which he had composed. Then, wishing to convince the bystanders and prove to them that he had this power, Eliezer placed a cup or a foot basin full of water a little way off and commanded the demon as it went out of the man to overturn it and make it known to the spectators that he had left the man. So he's like, some cloak and dagger, a little bit of show. He's like, puts a bowl of water over here. He's like, when you leave, spill that water over so everybody knows that you're gone, right? And so then he's like, heebity jeebity, hocus pocus, go. And then the water spills over. Everybody's like, oh, wow, you know, he, know, he knows what he's doing. Jesus is just like, shut up, get out. Shut up, get out. That's it. He rebukes him. Jesus distinguishes himself from other exorcists in that he did not rely on complex incantations. He could simply command the demons and they would leave their hosts so that the person who was held captive and victim was emancipated and set free, no longer a slave. A simple command of Jesus. That's the kind of authority that Jesus has. And the people in this passage don't know what to do with that kind of authority. I, I, we come to the end of the passage here, and it says in verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? It's a new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. People don't know what to do with Jesus' authority. He commands when he teaches. He commands spiritual beings and they flee from him. They're afraid of him. What is going on with this Jesus? It's interesting to, to, to realize that these demons knew Jesus' identity. The Spirit had affirmed Jesus' identity in chapter 1, verse 10. In verse 11, the Father affirms the identity of Jesus. Jesus knows his own identity, having heard it from the Father. Satan knows the identity of Jesus, verse 13. Animals know Jesus' identity in verse 13. Angels know Jesus' identity in verse 13. Demons know Jesus' identity in verse 24. But people are standing around going, what is this? 
You see, here is where I think we reach our ultimate issue with the identity of Jesus. Is attached to it, Jesus' identity, identity is really a question of authority. If Jesus is all that the Holy Spirit affirms, all that the Father says he is, all that Satan and demons fear and tremble at, if he is all that creation knows about, if he is all that the angels submit to, then how should humans respond? What should you and I do with that knowledge? Well, Jesus already gave us the answer, didn't he? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we close out our time in your word, we thank you for all these reminders. Thank you that you, even though you drive us into temptation, you are with us in the temptation. And you know, you empathize with our hearts as we, as we face testing, as we face trials. God, thank you that your spirit is present to empower us to cling to you in the face of those things. Thank you that we have been invited into your story to proclaim the same gospel of God. Thank you that you intend to use us as bankers and teachers and, and, and stay-at-home moms and, and laborers in the work field. You, you intend to use us for your glory and for the good of the kingdom. We, we thank you that we get to participate in your story of redemption. And knowing, Lord, your authority, coming face-to-face -face with the fact that even demons fear you, that Satan has been stomped by you, that animals bow down in submission to you, that angels are your servants. We come to you again this morning with our hearts bowed, our eyes on you, with the desire, God, to once again surrender our lives and say you may have all of us. We love you. We're here to become like you, to follow you, and to lead others to you. Make us sufficient for that task. In the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.